Hey, Absassanax, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanax Files. This week, we are discussing the second part of Droughtlander Book Club on The Diamond Brooch by Katherine Lowry Logan. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanax Files wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanax Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7 and 8, as well as Men in Kilts, Blood of My Blood, and anything Diana Gabaldon gets up to. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my breakdown of Part 2 of The Diamond Brooch by Katherine Lowry Logan. Today, we're going to start out talking about Kevin and JL. They have a very complex relationship in this book. And one of the primary complaints about the broken brooch is that Kevin and JL just have this very frenzied fall into bed together type of story. And it was kind of one of those things where they needed to be justified a little bit more as a soulmates duo. So I'm glad that we got this story all working itself out in the diamond brooch. It fits really well because they are a nice pairing for Amy and Jack. They're basically foils of each other. Kevin and JL had this really fast and furious relationship and Amy and Jack had this slow and steady relationship. They kind of mirror each other in a way and it's very interesting to watch, especially when we start looking at the friendships Amy has with JL and Jack has with Kevin. They all kind of intermingle because they're stuck on a ship together (laughs) on their way to London, but those relationships very nicely flesh out the intimate relationships that we've also got going on between these two couples. I really do enjoy this aspect of the diamond brooch, and I thought that this was a nice place to start this week's book club because... Jack and Amy are inevitably the bulk of the story, and so I wanted to spend a good chunk of time talking about them, talking about their characters, but Kevin and JL's story also justifies a good chunk of time. When they start this book, they're just on completely different planets, I feel like, and after the events of the Broken Brooch and the Three Brooches, there's just a lot that they're trying to process and deal with, and not a lot of time has elapsed. Kevin and JL have probably been together for about eight months by the time the diamond brooch starts. And in that time, they dealt with the whole murder at the winery, the cartel business, going and having Austin kidnapped. Plus, they actually were trying to get to know each other at this point. And then you've got all the stuff from the 1881 trip. There's just not a lot of room to breathe in their relationship. And For somebody like Kevin, especially, who's not used to this world of violence, that's a really big step to take, especially when he's dealing with his PTSD from the broken brooch. It just all really compounds into this nightmare of a situation, and nobody is really sure how to deal with it. Even JL, I mean, I think that part of her stress is watching Kevin's stress and not knowing how to help him, but Kevin just, he really is lost at the beginning of this book. We see that juxtaposition of their two personalities, which was kind of inevitable, in my opinion, because they did just 
fast and furious fall into bed together and then, oh, we're soulmates, let's get married, the end. So I felt like after this story and after the last book, The Three Brooches, Kevin and JL honestly have one of those relationships that I feel like is completely earned in this series. And I think it's because Catherine took time to have them struggle and have them come back stronger from that struggle. Much like Elliot and Meredith, you know, they're not a perfect couple. They fight. They have knockout, dragout arguments. It's really one of those where you see them simmer with their anger a little bit, struggle with their differences, but ultimately come back to this place of love and trust. And I feel like we get that a little bit with Kevin and JL. Although I do feel like JL is, she's very much more confrontational and has a very different personality. So I do think that that makes things a bit more difficult, especially when we're looking at how she gets along with the clan. Because of all the stuff that they are struggling with individually and as a couple, we see them start to rely on the physical side of their relationship way more than they should. And JL even says, based off of my experience with my first marriage, when you start relying on sex to bridge the gap between you and your partner, there's definitely a communication issue. And that's not a good thing. You need to be talking about things and not just falling into bed to each other and relying on that to fix things and reconnect you, she starts to see things going downhill in a hurry. Not to mention the fact that JL's job as a cop and as VP of global security requires her to put herself in a position a lot of times where she's the protector. Kevin knows that, but at the same time, he can't wrap his head around it. It makes him extremely nervous to think about the fact that she's in the line of fire and there's literally nothing he can do about it. So he tries to be sensitive to that, but he also feels like she's not being sensitive to the fact that he is Elliot's heir in a way, him and James Cullen, and they're just as responsible for the safety and security of the clan as she is as VP of Global Security. So like I said, there's just a lot of things that aren't getting translated there for them. It makes it really tough when you start looking at the situation they're in in 1881, where JL knows they're being followed, that they're being watched. Like she gets this feeling, the hairs on the back of her neck stand up. And instead of going to Kevin with that and telling him, hey, I just have this gut feeling that somebody's following us, that something bad is going to happen. She's like, oh, well, he would never understand that feeling. So I'll just tell Connor and Pete because they'll take me seriously. She just assumes he's not going to take her seriously. And that kind of assumption is happening on both sides, which ultimately leads to the breakdown of their relationship. Things are already on the rocks whenever they get to New York. Kevin's very moody and broody. JL is constantly not wanting to rock the boat at all. She very much wants to protect him and not ruffle his feathers and give him time to heal. And that kind of babying, while is well-intended, is not necessarily what the situation calls for. They do have this really strong physical connection. That's always been like the highlight of JL and Kevin's relationship. But... Even that starts to lead to trouble whenever they have this tryst in the park and this cop overhears 
Kevin and JL's conversation, they're like doing this little teasing thing where Kevin's nipping at her neck and she's like, well, that's going to cost you a dollar, you know? The cop mistakes her as a prostitute. It's not a good situation, obviously, because prostitution is illegal and it's going to get her arrested, but also it's not a good situation because it really highlights how helpless Kevin feels when he's in a situation where he already feels powerless in most situations, like he just can't take care of people the way that most men in the clan are. He's not a fighter in that way. So this whole situation really highlights his insecurities The ironic part of this entire situation is that the cop that originally approaches Kevin and JL about this situation is not the cop that ends up pursuing JL onto the ship, attempting to kill her and all of that jazz. It's actually his partner. And I guess that part of this whole story slipped my mind whenever I was initially reading this and even in subsequent rereads i didn't really pick it up until i was reading it this time it's a very interesting turn of events i will say um mustache cop is obviously one of those guys that thinks women are inferior that they're property in a lot of ways they're just objects and it's totally okay for him to take advantage of a helpless woman who's in handcuffs by the way in the back of a moving vehicle Yet, whenever she's able to defend herself, that just riles him up even more because it takes away a sense of his own masculinity, that like he got beat up by a woman. They just keep poking the bear with this, right? Because the clan thinks, well, if we defeat him in court, fine. But no, like his pride's hurt now. And he just keeps coming back for more, thinking that this time is going to be the time that he wins. Mwahaha. What a piece of shit. I can't even begin to describe my distaste. JL is just absolutely beside herself with the fact that this cop would attempt to even do such a thing. Her problem here is she can't stand dirty cops at all. Like, it's the bane of her existence. And we saw this in The Broken Brooch. We dealt with dirty cops there a lot, too. And those are kind of a trigger for her in a lot of ways. So dealing with somebody like that gets her hackles up, especially when she's trying to maintain a calm for Kevin because she doesn't want Kevin to get worked up because when he gets worked up, combined with his PTSD, it's a whole other ballgame from when she gets worked up. And she realizes that. A lot of this situation is just like walking the tightrope for her. Going to court and all of that as a result, I mean, A, this whole situation is impacted or started by the brooches. I'm assuming it's the amethyst that interfered. And maybe it's the fact that the amethyst came along for the ride, even though they weren't using it, that like interfered in that way. I think that the amethyst intentionally placed JL and Kevin here. They needed to be here because JL needed to be arrested to get the information on Amy. But like I said in my last book club, they also needed to be here because running into the cops and all of this that happens really impacts the story for them and how they deal with all of these triggers and emotions and everything that this puts in motion. And without all of that, You're not going to have these characters in a place where they can really break up because they have to break up or at least separate to deal with their own issues and then come back together at a better point in their lives. Without that, I don't think that you would have the closure that you get on this relationship. Like you're not as comfortably seated in your opinion of these characters 
if you don't have them sorting through all of this muddle that's going on with them emotionally. When Jack insists that they go to court, A, we're seeing his experience as a time traveler, and I'm glad he did because they ended up being in New York much longer than they thought they were going to be. But B, you're getting the developing relationship between Jack and JL. And this is one of my all-time favorite unlikely friendships of the Brooch series. Everybody's a big family and everybody gets along. Yes, they have their arguments and their differences of opinions. But overall, everyone works very nicely together. You just have certain members of the clan that fit in better with each other than others. Jack and JL are not two of those people. They don't have a lot in common on the surface. But I think what's important about Jack and JL is that they have a lot of common life experiences and they actually do have quite a bit in common as far as life opinions. Maybe that's the way to put it. Like, because they're definitely not similar in personality. They're so unlikely and they're just like oil and water. But in that way... They're both open to different perspectives on things and their friendship helps them to see the other side of a situation. And this friendship all spurs out of this unlikely thing, this meeting with Mustache Cop that kind of just starts snowballing. While things start to go downhill with the cop they met in Central Park, things also start to become stronger between Jack and JL and After the whole Jack protecting Carolina Rose failure, he gravitates towards protecting JL in a lot of ways. And even though he swears up and down to Kevin that that is not his motivation in all of this, he probably just doesn't even realize that that's his motivating factor. How can it not be? JL is small and she's feisty. And yes, she can take care of herself, but also she's in a time when there are a heck of a lot more men that view women as an object versus a person, and she's dressed in a dress. She's not able to physically protect herself the way that she normally would, and she does need people looking out for her. Jack's not a fighter either. Jack is very similar to Kevin in that way, but he does gravitate toward protecting her, even so. And one way that he can do that is by taking her case to court, convincing the judge she didn't do these things she's accused of doing, getting her off and just really looking after her in an emotional respect. And I think that's one thing that she appreciates about Jack. She has Connor and Pete and herself to take care of her physical well-being. But Jack looks after her emotionally, checks in on her, helps her process her emotions, and he's a good sounding board for her. I asked Catherine why Jack and JL gravitate towards each other. And she said that they're just an unlikely pair. They really needed each other and it worked because it was unlikely and they wanted it that way. They wanted it to be one of those things where nobody expects them to get along. Nobody expects them to have a meaningful friendship. And yet there it is on display for the world to see. And we see instances of this friendship between Jack and JL in something as small as JL airing her concerns to Jack. She says that she feels like Elliot and Meredith are grooming her for something because they don't feel like she's good enough for Kevin. And Jack tells her she's freaking crazy. He's really good at that. He reminds me a lot of my brother in that way because he just has this way of just being like, 
what are you talking about? Of course, that's not a problem. And he does it in such a non-offensive way that you just are like, okay, you believe him because clearly he's the more rational of the two in this situation. (laughs) That's just the way that his response makes you feel like he puts you at ease. He's a good source of advice. He's just so chill all the time. And JL, who is very much a loose cannon, a lot of this book, because she's so frazzled and on edge about all the crap that's happening around her, especially with Kevin, that she really just needs that calm, cool, collected person in her life to really put things in perspective. So that by the end of this book, when JL is really starting to think about ending things with Kevin, she can go to Jack and talk to him in a way that she can't talk to her brother. She can't talk to other members of the clan because by breaking up with Kevin, JL feels like a failure. When you're in a family with all of these overachievers and these perfect individuals, it can be really hard to admit that you're not succeeding at something. And for her to have Jack who has screwed up so many times that he is beyond judgment for anybody. He can just listen and offer her a judgment-free zone and good advice because he's been through so much that whether he wants to admit it or not, he's very wise and he's very good at giving advice. He's not necessarily good at taking it a lot of the times, but he's a good sounding board for everybody, especially Once he meets Amy and he's kind of complete in himself in a lot of respects. After Jack helps Amy and there's such a clear improvement in her emotional state, JL automatically asks Jack if he can help Kevin because Kevin is really just once you think he's hit rock bottom, he just keeps going. The poor guy. JL wants nothing more than to help him find his way back to himself. And she's hoping that Jack can help him like he helped Amy. But the problem is, Amy was a willing participant in this situation where Kevin is not willing to face facts yet. He's not willing to make himself vulnerable, start to admit what's eating at him, and get better. There's an instant where he says, for an instant, Jail's eyes were dark naked with feeling, and Jack was caught up in what he saw there, tangled in her pain. Before Carolina Rose, he would have run from what he saw in JL's eyes. He couldn't run anymore. Carolina Rose had humanized him, and for the first time in his life, he connected on a deeper level with the people he cared for. He feels more human. He might be even more vulnerable himself, and so he's more open to the emotions of others in that respect. He knows that JL is struggling, but he's not sure how to help her in this situation because Kevin is not willing to open up. And Kevin does open up to Jack in certain instances, and we'll talk about that here in a few minutes, but despite the fact that he is starting to be vulnerable with Jack, there's just really not much that Jack can do in this particular instance. It's not a matter of repressed memory with Kevin. It's that he's not sure how to emotionally process everything that he's been through. And until he's ready and willing to do that, he can't begin to heal. And through all of this, I mean, it's really the honesty factor. Everybody's concerned about JL, about Kevin, but for Jack, it's that 
he's brutally honest with her to the point of pain sometimes, but she can always count on him to tell her like it is to offer pearls of wisdom or good advice. And that is really what she needs. I mean, she's got four older brothers and a dad that are always giving her unsolicited advice, I'm sure, but she is also their priority. Jack is a friend for her and Kevin. And so he wants what's best for both of them. And I think that is a good vibe for them to have. And even through the breakup and the intervening, what is it, three months that they're separated, Jack is always there, always coaching her, always being that source of optimism and a positive force for her. I love the moment when they're on the ship. They're really talking about whether it's a good idea for jail to break up with Kevin and all of that. And they've had this really good talk. And then this quote, I think, sums up their relationship perfectly. She says, if you're expecting me to give you a break the next time you fuck up, forget it. I'll be the same hard ass, but it won't mean I love you any less. And then he looks at her and says, I would expect nothing else from the toughest O'Grady I know. They just accept each other for who they are. And I feel like she's tough on him in an environment where there might not be quite as many people that are tough on him openly. There's a lot of judgment behind the scenes, but there's nobody that like flat out tells him like it is 24-7. Same with Jack with JL. Like he just offers a level of sympathy and honesty and transparency with her that not a lot of people give her. I would say 99% of the problem with Kevin and JL is the fact that she's got this I call it her Ragazza Tosta persona because there's not really a better way to put it. She was on the NYPD force for so long and she was a beat cop before she was a detective and she's used to taking care of herself, kicking ass and taking names and being a general hard ass for lack of a better term. She can defend herself. That confidence that she walks with because she can defend herself really impacts her psyche and gives her a sense of false security along the way. It's referred to as the rule of three, where if something happens three times, it really like hammers it home. And in this story, in JL's story, we get three separate instances of her being confronted by mustache cop. We've got the initial in the back of the police wagon, which she kicks his ass and takes names. And that really makes her feel good, but in the worst way possible, because she doesn't feel like she needs protection from anyone. And then we've got what happens in the alley in Little Italy. Patrick ends up saving her. And then we have what happens on the ship the third time, where she's taken down into the belly of the ship and almost dies. And if it hadn't been for Amy, she probably would have. We've got those three distinct instances, but the first instance is really what sets her up for the fall that she takes later on. Obviously, she's dealing with a lot emotionally, and that doesn't help when we're talking about her level of vulnerability. It's really just a terrifying situation. And you know, with each successive instance of her running into Mustache Cop, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Connor and Pete are her protectors. They're big brothers to her. They look out for her. Pete was her partner on the force. Connor literally is her big brother. JL's not naive. Like she knows that it's a dangerous situation, 
but she really needs people to hammer it home to her sometimes. And I love how Connor and Pete don't hesitate because they're cops too. And they get how dangerous of a situation this is just like she does. And Connor says, if that asshole drags you down into the belly of the ship, we'll never find you in time. Then Pete says, that's not hyperbole, Ragazza Tosa. Capisci cosa intendo? <laughs> Do you get it? <laughs> because literally, JL, like we may not be able to get to you in time if this happens. This kind of situation is why she feels like she can tell them things that she can't tell Kevin, that like they will get it when he doesn't get it. While it's a good thing that she has people to tell, it's also a really bad thing because that means that that line of communication between her and Kevin is completely non-existent in situations like this. And a lot of that non-communication stems from the fact that she feels the need to protect people and she views Kevin as one of those people that's in need of protecting. And that is one thing that Kevin absolutely will not stand for. It's one of the highest sources of tension for their relationship because I think he puts it as she's behaving like my mother and not my partner. And he doesn't want that. He wants a partner. He doesn't need a mother. <laughs> he already has a mother. A couple of them, actually. And so that really grates on him. We even see in the situations of her needing to protect, it goes as far as to be the fact that she needs to be the one to break up their engagement because that way, if she does it, Kevin won't have to feel guilty or ashamed for being the one to break up their relationship. So it's not just physically protecting him, it's emotionally protecting him. And it's a default setting for her that she can't turn off. It's really hard for her to process that. She puts it to Pete and Connor that things aren't working between them because he's not a cop and he just doesn't get it. Pete, who, if you'll remember back to the broken brooch, they had a conversation where when JL told Pete that she wanted to be with a guy who wasn't a cop and wasn't part of that life. Pete told her, yeah, okay, but just keep in mind that if you do meet somebody who's not a cop, they're never going to understand where you're coming from and how you live your life and your job in general. They're just never going to understand that aspect of you. He does a little I told you so when things start going south. He's like, I told you civilians just don't understand us. I don't think it's Kevin doesn't understand her. I mean, it is a little bit. I'm not going to sit here and say that's completely it. He understands that she needs to protect people. He just wishes that he wasn't one of those people she felt like she needed to protect. Her protective nature doesn't discriminate, and he wishes it would discriminate just a tad. <laughs> one of the things that I absolutely love about the trio of Connor, Pete, and JL is their sibling relationship. And Connor and Pete, they're best friends, and they have been for a long time, like since they were kids. Pete and JL partnered together on the force so they have a really good working relationship pete has known jl most of her life because he was friends with connor and when jl made it onto the force he asked for her as a partner because he wanted to prove that the italians and the irish could work together which i thought was really cute but he's just as protective of her if not more protective than connor is as her big brother and i love that dynamic that they have I mean, jail's in no shortage of men to protect her back. And I always kind of wanted an older brother, so I love reading that really good sibling relationship. But it also is something that 
they tease each other relentlessly. They just have this familial bond. Like Amy says about Pete, she's like, he looks harmless in jails. Like Pete, harmless? He has a trail of pissed off women from Brooklyn to the Bronx. <laughs> like he's not harmless, Amy. Watch your back. I mean, he's a super sweet guy. As a friend, he's amazing. But as a romantic partner, he's definitely lacking in some characteristics. Because he and JL are just like ball busting all day long as partners, they just have a unique dynamic to their relationship in that when JL and Kevin, it's right before they break up. And I think it's right after Lillian is attacked and the brooch is stolen. They're in the apartment and they're kind of just like pacing the opposite sides of the room from each other. And Pete just looks at him and says, what the hell is wrong with you two? Sit the fuck down. <laughs> like... I don't know what's got your panties in a wad, but we're not dealing with it right now. Okay, sit down. There's just such a unique family relationship with the O'Grady clan in general. Like, it made me so happy to get them added to this story because they just have such a dynamic that was missing before. And it feels so good, so wholesome in a way. The other part of this dynamic is Kevin. And everything that he's dealing with. His emotions are so complex right now because he's dealing with so much. So like I said, he's a lover, not a fighter. So naturally, all the stuff that happened in the broken brooch with Austin getting kidnapped, the cartel shooting at him, almost dying, that really had an emotional impact that on its own would take like months and months of therapy to work through, right? And then you get thrown into 1881, the potential separation from JL, JL getting taken hostage and him having to try to go save her and then him getting taken hostage, Carolina Rose's death, all of that was one giant trigger from all the stuff that he was already dealing with with the broken brooch. And then you add the 1909 trip, and JL's right. They just should not have come on this trip. They already had so much they were trying to work through, and this trip was just not a good idea on any front. Uh, JL says that for the past few weeks, Kevin would suddenly become more reserved with her, more professional than personal, more perfunctory than passionate. And then, after an hour or a day, he would revert back to himself. So this is a classic PTSD symptom that you just snap, like you can turn on and off certain aspects of your personality as you're dealing with triggers. We see it very well portrayed in that instance where she's actually makes this comment when they're in Little Italy and he's teasing her and saying, no, I like you tipsy. We're going to make hot, crazy love tonight when we get back to the hotel and just being very playful with her. And then all of a sudden he's like, go outside, JL. Me and Connor need to talk. It's like a switch flips with him. And I would find that very unsettling myself, and I know that that's probably what she's working with as well. What JL doesn't understand is that when she puts herself in dangerous situations that Kevin can't protect her from, it gives him an inferiority complex. He, being in a family with so many macho alpha males, feels like he isn't doing enough to protect his woman. And when she takes on that role and says, but I'm trying to protect you. It just makes things 10 times worse because he's like, no, you're not supposed to protect me. I'm supposed to protect you. So it's all these gender role ideals that he's got 
flipped around in his head. And it's very much the opposite in a lot of respects of the discrimination that Amy deals with with Bennett. You know, say what you will about all the things that JL had to give up to make things work with Kevin. But Kevin had to give up some things too. He had to give up his pride, work on himself emotionally. He had to give up these deeply ingrained ideas of gender roles and accept the fact that JL is allowed to take care of herself and she's allowed to take care of him too. And that's okay. They just needed to come to a middle ground on this. And I think that's really what we see over the course of this story. One thing that helps Kevin get through this is his relationship with Jack. Jack teases Elliot for being this wise old owl, this Yoda, but Jack is the source of all the wisdom while they're on this trip. And I don't know if part of his at-ease personality when they come back from this is that he's settled into his role as sort of a senior member of the clan and as a leader in a lot of respects. I mean, yes, he's found a lot of peace from being with Amy, but I think a lot of it also is him becoming more settled in himself and in his role. More than anyone else probably on this trip or in the clan in general, Jack understands what Kevin is going through. I mean, Jack's been through his share of jolting, unsettling experiences. Exhibit A, the sapphire brooch. Exhibit B, the emerald brooch. Exhibit C, the three brooches. (laughs) Jack knows what it's like to wake up at night from a nightmare that he can't get out of his head just running laps around the plantation to try to make himself exhausted enough that he'll go back to sleep. He sees that in Kevin. He knows that Kevin is struggling with that. His goal through all of this is just to provide Kevin with the sense that somebody is looking out for his best interests, but not in a way that's going to be domineering or overprotective. Just somebody that Kevin can open up to kind of like a therapist in a way. Kevin is being treated for his PTSD through medication and talk therapy, but he's not taking his medication regularly. So he's not really serious about his recovery, which I think is a huge mistake and maybe one that he realizes he made in retrospect. They have this conversation where Jack apologizes to Kevin. It's so heartfelt and so wonderfully genuine. I love it personally. It really shows growth in their friendship, but also growth in Jack as well. He says, I'm sorry I put you and everyone else through that trauma in San Francisco. I fucked up big time and I'll carry the scars for the rest of my life. Let me carry the scars, buddy. Don't take it out on JL. He does it for JL, but he also does it for Kevin to get Kevin talking in a way that Kevin is comfortable with. And he says, I know I'm not myself. The shooting followed by what happened in San Francisco was a double whammy. Now with the wedding coming up, buying a ranch in Colorado and a winery in Italy, plus building our house and starting the winery there, it's too much. Too many decisions to make and too many demands on my limited time. I can't handle it. And when Kevin said this, I just felt so seen (laughs) because this is how I feel sometimes. Like I've just got so many irons in the fire, so many things going on. So many demands on my time and so little time to actually get it accomplished. And it's led to a level anxiety that sometimes is just like the ground opens up and is going to swallow me. So I understand Kevin probably better than I ever have at this point in my life. Like 
it's a lot. And coupled with all the traumatic things that he's experienced on top of all the things that he's got on his plate right now, I can fully understand how he is feeling and why he's feeling the things that he is feeling. And when you're so frazzled like that, your emotions are so raw that any little thing is just going to set you off. And that's where he's at. Things that normally wouldn't have bothered him because he was a really carefree, aloof person when he was younger and even when he first met JL. And it's not that he doesn't realize it's happening. It's that he can't stop it because he's got so much going on in his head that all your priorities get mixed up and your emotions are right on the surface and hard to control sometimes. And I'm so glad that he has somebody like Jack who understands what he's going through because of the things that Jack experienced. Kevin feels like he has a confidant in a way when he goes to talking about his nightmares, his fears, his performance anxiety. It's all kind of just bubbling under the surface and making him feel like he's not good enough for anyone, let alone JL, the woman that he just puts on this pedestal and wants to give the moon to. If he can't satisfy her as a woman, what sense is there in even attempting to be a romantic partner, a life partner, add it to the pile of crap that he's already dealing with. That performance anxiety that he's dealing with and everything that's going on makes him feel even like less of a man. And then whenever you have JL trying to protect him on top of him already feeling less manly than he's ever felt in his entire life. Of course, that's a recipe for freaking disaster. It's just awful. I felt so bad for Kevin. I did really like this one parallel that I'm going to mention. Whenever Jack and Kevin are having this conversation about their vulnerabilities, Kevin kind of snaps at Jack and says, you're one to talk, always running away to the monastery to deal with your problems. And Jack tells him, the monastery is a place of solace, a place to put life in perspective. It eliminates the white noise so I can hear my heart. When I'm still and reflective and prepared to hear what it wants to say, I can heal. And without Jack even intending to be taken this way, Kevin takes that advice. He finds his solace in Italy, in the Italian culture. And when he goes to Italy and spends time working in the vineyards and learning different professional roles and spending time outside in the sun away from all of these really complex demands on his time and emotions, he can get back to the basics of who he is and start to really work on the things that are hurting him. And one of those really big things that's hurting him right now is his lack of trust in everybody. The revelation that Elliot was his biological father did a number on Kevin in so many ways because that was a flat out betrayal, in his opinion, from somebody he trusted most in life. Something as huge as Elliot being his father, after all the things him and Elliot have been through and he just neglected to tell him? How does that even happen? Kevin can't wrap his mind around the fact that there was such dishonesty between them all this time. While they've tried to work out things, everything kept getting in the way and nothing got fixed, basically. It just festered for so freaking long that beyond 
intensive, basically locked door therapy of just yelling at each other until you get it figured out. It was beyond repair. Those trust issues that Kevin had with Elliot started to bleed over into his relationship with everyone else, particularly JL, because of the way he and JL met. JL was being very cagey because she'd recently been divorced and she was keeping secrets from Austin. Not only was she keeping the secret that she was recently divorced from Austin's stepfather, but she was also keeping the secret that she was really Austin's biological mother. And so Kevin knows that she's just as capable of keeping secrets of a huge magnitude as Elliot is. And so whether he wants to admit it or not, his issues with Elliot are being projected onto his relationship with JL because he knows that she committed a similar betrayal with her son. So we see these moments of him knowing that she's not being honest with him after the police wagon. He's constantly like, are you pregnant? I know you haven't been feeling well, but you would tell me if you were pregnant, right? Just these consistent moments of him not trusting what she's telling him. And that all stems from that initial betrayal from Elliot. He lets his fear and anxiety over everything continue to deteriorate these critical relationships in his life. And despite this, they're his family. They're his loved ones. They're never going to stop loving him. They're always going to be there for him in any way that he needs them to be there. But I don't think Kevin really realizes that at this point in his life. Part of his emotional recovery is working through that and realizing that nothing he could say or do is going to push them away. Lori, they kill me in this book. Break my heart. It's such a horrible situation because it's just miscommunication and they both want what's best for each other. But yeah, I think it really took hitting rock bottom for them to bounce back. Jack has a strong ability to empathize with others. He does. It's a superpower for him, I swear. (laughs) And it's critical, too, for this story. Liz says, I believe that everybody's so mean to Kevin. Yeah, It's complicated because they don't understand what he's dealing with. A lot of the people in the clan are um, military or police who have been trained to deal with compartmentalizing their emotions and kind of dealing with it and moving on. Kevin has not ever been in a situation before where it's just one stressor after another. So I really think it's just that they don't understand what he's going through. His PTSD has magnified all the other stressors in his life. They all want what's best for him, but sometimes people have different opinions on what's best for you. All right, we're getting to the point in this little discussion today where we talk about the major theme of this book, which is the search for enlightenment. While Amy and Jack are the major players There's really four. It's Kevin, JL, Amy, and Jack. And each of them throughout this book is searching for enlightenment on some sort of level. So for Kevin, it's making things right with Elliot, finding himself again, and finding that inner peace. Whenever he first gets back, kind of forced through the vortex by JL, he immediately runs into Elliot and Meredith. They know something's wrong. How could they not? But it's really important that they maintain a sense of control and don't freak out because he's barely holding it together as it is. 
Elliot is immediately, whenever he finds out that JL and Kevin split up, he says, if you force me to take sides, of course I'm on yours. That's his papa bear coming out. And while I think it's appreciated, also they're not quite in that space yet to where they're comfortable with each other again. And whether Kevin wants to acknowledge it or not, he still harbors a lot of resentment towards Elliot for the way things were handled around his paternity. So the best thing for Kevin to do, and after his conversation with Jack, I think he kind of realizes that he just needs to take a hike. He needs to step away from the situation, go to his happy place, which is Italy. He loves wine. He's always loved wine since we first met him in The Last McClenna. But he's really starting to get a feel for the Italian culture through all of these trips that he's taken to Italy with Meredith, shopping for wineries and such. And we start to see that come out in his personality when they go to Little Italy and he walks into Lilla's restaurant and he starts picking all of these different scents out of the air and the tasting notes in the wine. He seems so comfortable. JL, when she's out dancing on the floor, she says she looks out over the heads of the other women and she sees Kevin laughing. And she hasn't seen that in such a long time, but he's so at ease with these people and in this environment that she really sees a side to him that she hasn't seen since the shooting eight months ago. Whenever you look at that in comparison to the conversation that Jack had about how he goes to the monastery because that's where things are quiet and he can really hear his heart and understand his needs as an individual. I think it's probably with that in mind that Kevin decides to stay in Italy whenever they go. He just really needs to be away. He's been thinking about buying a winery for a while out in Tuscany. This is the time, right? Because once JL gets back to Kentucky, that window of time to think and really process what he needs is going to close because she's going to be back. And then once again, he'll start thinking about his failures in their relationship, basically. Whereas if he's already gone to Italy by the time that she gets back, he'll just have time to focus on himself and not worry about her as much, which I think is what's needed here. So he decides to go completely remote, only communicate through email and text, just completely remove himself from the family and all the entanglements while he gets his life sorted, which is fine. Elliot and Meredith are like, okay, if that's what you need, 100%, we're here for you if take the time that you need to get your life in order. But by the time JL and Amy and Jack and all of them get back weeks later, I think it's been like two weeks or something like that, Elliot and Meredith have already made their way back to Kentucky. Kevin's living in Italy. JL is obviously struggling. Is it a good thing that he moved to Italy? Like, I don't really know how to feel about that because I wish he was here and we could work on things. But also I get it. If he's happy, then that's what he needs. We really start to see Elliot and Jack's relationship showcased in this intervening time after they get back from Italy the first time and once Jack and the whole crew return from 1909, where Jack being settled in his role, as I said, and like really embracing his position within the clan 
has a really good conversation with Elliot. And a lot of times I feel bad for Elliot, especially in later books, because he's the leader of the family and keeping everybody safe and happy is a really huge weight on his shoulders. He always internalizes things and holds himself responsible for any failures within the clan. And he views the failure of JL and Kevin's relationship, the fact that JL wants to resign as VP of Global Security, all of that he views as a personal failure on his part. He needs somebody like Jack that is blunt and can tell him like it is to really put things in perspective for him. And I love how Jack says, sackcloth and ashes aren't a good look for you, Elliot. JL and Kevin are carrying enough guilt for the entire family. You don't need to heap yours on top of the pile. It's just a really easy way of saying, look, their problems are their problems and they're adults and they need to work through it on their own. But a huge part of this conversation that Jack and Elliot also have is the fact that, yes, Kevin is going through a lot, but he's also your son. And whether he wants your support or not, you need to give it to him. Jack has felt firsthand the depth of Elliot's love. Jack screwed up so many times, as I've said repeatedly over the course of, I feel like, every book club, basically, since he came on the scene. The one person that has consistently forgiven him, accepted him for his faults, was Elliot. And that's what Jack said. He's like, I have screwed up more times than I can count, and you never stopped loving me, even when I deserved it. And he says, your advice has always been spot on, so I'm going to give you some first-rate counseling. Go to Kevin. Love him like you've never loved anyone before. Don't give up on him. JL needs him back, and so do I. Man, what a guy. Elliot knows that Jack is a good person. He has made mistakes, but he's never hurt anybody intentionally. He just needed some maturity. And I think this 1909 trip gave him that. And Elliot sees that, that he's more at peace than he was when he left. He's more complete. And whenever he gives Elliot that advice to go to Italy, Elliot recognizes that for the great piece of advice that it is. And he does go to Italy and he does spend time with Kevin. He, for the majority of three months, sticks with Kevin. They have knockdown, drag out arguments, a lot of crying, a lot of raw emotions, but they work it out. They have to. If they don't work this out, the whole dynamic of the clan would dissolve. If Kevin and Elliot can't work through their differences, communicate effectively, and realize that they both do love each other and they're both just being stubborn phrasers, that Elliot did what he did because he thought it was best for his son. And those are the tough decisions that you have to make as a parent. Kevin needed to understand that, but Elliot also needed to understand that Kevin was deeply wounded by that choice. Elliot is honest with Kevin and says that after James Cullen was born, he really began to regret that choice. But it's one of those things where he made his bed and now he had to lie in it because Kevin was in his late 20s by the time JC was born. His mother was not on board with that choice, to be honest with Kevin. Elliot is an honorable person and he keeps his promises and he promised her he wouldn't say anything. So he wasn't necessarily upset when it came out, but he also realizes the burden that that put on his son as well. I think it's really cute 
the moment that they both realized they were being ridiculous. An older woman came to the table where they were out having dinner one night, and she says, The love you have for your son and the love your son has for you is so beautifully expressed in the way you mirror each other. When son moves forward, father moves back. When son moves back, father moves forward. In a dance as old as time and as dependable as the tides. It's just this natural engagement that they have in their body language when they're having a conversation. And what JL says when Kevin is telling her this story is so completely true that they wouldn't be doing the dance if healing hadn't already taken place. But healing never would have taken place if Elliot had not taken Jack's advice and gone to Italy. So yeah, that was Kevin's journey to enlightenment and his character. For JL, it's all about the career change. So for all of her life, she's been a cop. Her brothers are cops. Her dad was a cop. That was really how she identified herself. And moving into the position of VP of Global Security was a way that she could have her cake and eat it too. It was really something where all of this stuff that Kevin was dealing with and struggling with really made her realize she too was struggling. She makes a comment, I want to decorate the house and turn it into a home. See if I can get Pops to spend more time here. He'll enjoy watching Austin play college ball. Plus, I want to travel to other locations other than Napa and Scotland. I want to take time to read, to start the new vineyards, and do more horseback riding. I've been a workaholic who eats coffee for lunch way too long. It's time to stop and do all the things I've wanted to do, but never had the time. So she's realizing that she's literally just been go, 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 go her entire life. And she wants to stop and smell the roses now. And that's something that I don't think she would have realized unless her and Kevin broke up. She came to this point in her life where she was like, why am I killing myself? Because Kevin realized the same thing, that he's just got way too much on his plate and he needs to stop and enjoy the finer things in life and like really get back to basics on who he is as an individual. And JL realized the same thing. She needs to focus on her because if she doesn't focus on her, then her and Kevin don't have a hope in hell. Kevin and JL use their time apart to do some honest evaluation and really figure things out, both in a technical and emotional sense. But whenever they reunite, they're both in the best physical shape of their lives, basically. And I think that that's really just a metaphor because They've lost weight physically, but they've also lost weight emotionally. They both have given up some major stressors in their lives and are really working through their problems to the point where they're ready to work on their relationship with each other because they feel like they're in a good enough space now to where they can put energy into a relationship with another person, if that makes sense. Whenever JL shows up in Italy... She freaks out. She's texting Jack the whole time because she's like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I'm just so nervous. And he's her little cheerleader. Just, you can do this. You got this. Like, now go kill it. JL's very worried because she didn't tell Kevin that she was coming, that he's going to turn her away at the door. But she's not really taking into account the fact that the whole reason Kevin went to Italy was to work on himself. And after three months of working on himself, he's kind of in the same headspace that she is where He misses her. He wants to be with her, but that they have things that they need to work on. They need to have some honest conversations and they really need to get to know each other again. 
So they do, they chat and she notices that Kevin's more relaxed. He has this open, honest posture. His eyes are unguarded. She's just really starting to see the Kevin that she knows and loves again. I was so happy for them whenever they like work out everything and they end up together again because they really have just been through the ringer. I think Kevin is really shocked that JL gave up her gun, gave up her job. But it's also one of those things where he's like, okay, but if you gave up your job, then why do you still have so many demands on your time? Like, why are you going to Australia? Why are you going to Colorado? Why can't you stay here with me in Italy? He has to be accepting of the fact that no, she's not the VP of global security anymore, but she's still on the board and they're trying to find a place for her within the clan and within the company that works for her. He kind of views it as, well, I've done all this work on myself, so you're still telling me that you're too busy to work on us. It worries him a little bit, but then he understands that, no, like, I really have taken a step back. We're just trying to figure out how I still fit within the family. Kevin can't help but be just a tad jealous whenever he finds out that JL and Jack have this really super strong friendship and that they text each other all the time. And I love how when JL tells Jack, he's like, you need to nip that in the bud right now. Like, do not let him be jealous or this is all going to be for nothing. So JL has the perfect response to him. She says, he's in love with someone else. And honestly, so am I. Like, he loves Amy. I love you. And there's nothing going on between us except for friendship. And I love that Kevin asked Jack to be his best man when all of this is said and done, because he realizes after, I'm sure, like a bajillion conversations between him and JL, that Jack had a huge role in the success of Kevin and JL's relationship. Jack gives JL a very important piece of advice. He says, you need to understand what he wants as a man. Listen to him and hear what he's saying. Most of the time, guys talk in a different language and women misinterpret. If he offers to cook or grill out, jump on it. He'll feel like he's taking care of you. So this has been the disconnect between JL and Kevin for all this time. JL hasn't let Kevin take care of her. And so the whole goal of this Italy trip is to let Kevin court JL and take care of her, give him what he needs as a man, And see where it goes. She needs to stop being the one that's in control all the time because that's not going to work for their relationship. So she does. They decide to go on this big day of fun, have all of this gelato and go see the sights in Florence and just generally have an amazing time. It really does sound so fantastic. But no sex because sex has never been the problem for them. It's kind of going to be the kiss of death for them in a way, because whenever they're physically intimate, everything else falls away. They don't feel the need to communicate because they're so into each other and into the physical act that they're not having these important conversations with each other about what's important to the other person. JL's very honest with Kevin about that. She's like, it's not that I'm not hot for you because I am, but... We need to learn if there is more to our relationship than sex. When Kevin was depressed, it affected his sex drive. And when they weren't having sex as much, their relationship started to deteriorate. 
Kevin realizes that JL has very valid concerns here. If they can't work on their relationship outside of the physical element, then there's nothing to build on there. And all they really had was sex. One thing that I love about this conversation is you can really see how they've worked on themselves. JL sees how much Kevin is struggling with that comment, struggling with the mention of his depression and the deterioration of their relationship and that failure. She sees how much he's struggling with it, but she doesn't rescue him from it. She lets him sit with it and come to his own decision because that's something that before all of this went down, she would have swooped in and gave him an out, but she doesn't. And that's very important when we're talking about Kevin taking control of his life. They go on this big day of fun. And I really do love how JL says to Kevin, we thought we had everything we needed, but we didn't. We never learned how to laugh together or how to sit quietly and watch the world go by like we did when we ate those silly gelatos. I want another day like today. Like they just had so much fun. They do know each other. We saw the beginnings of what we saw in the broken brooch between Kevin and JL. Like this just really flirty personality. I love the scene where Kevin's like, oh, I don't want to drink and drive. So I hired a car service. And JL's like, I know you, Kevin. You just want to make out in the back seat. Like so flirty and carefree and fun. They don't talk about the serious things. They just enjoy life. They sit down and eat ice cream. They go see the sights. They tour the city. And it's light and it's fun to the point where they get back to the hotel and, you know, they have this really deep, passionate kiss. Kevin wants to take it further, but JL's like, no, we're not going to have sex. We need to call it what it is and like say goodnight. He says, fine, like I'll walk away. And then he says, I hope you sleep well. I sure as hell won't. (laughs) It's so freaking adorable. And this whole situation just made me feel so good about where their relationship was headed. It was a lot like a rewind on their relationship and them building a foundation and getting to know each other. It's normally something that we see at the beginning of a relationship. Um, And it's basically the polar opposite of what we got with Jack and Amy in a lot of respects, because they spent this whole book getting to know each other before they were intimate. And for JL and Kevin, they fell into bed with each other. And then eight months later, they're finally starting to get to know each other. It really also made Kevin realize what he wanted out of life. JL describes it as he had this look on his face like the whole second day about um, how he was a man evaluating his life and coming to terms with who he was and what he wanted. And again, she's not going to ask him his thoughts. She's not going to try to protect him and give him an out. Like she knows this is the decision he has to make for himself. And he finally comes to that decision at dinner. She says she can like physically see the pieces clicking into place. And that's when he gives her her ring back and says, you know, I want to be with you. I love you. And if that means that I have to leave Italy and come back to America with you, I will because I believe in us and I want us to be together. I love Kevin and JL, guys. Like, I think they're probably one of my favorite couples. And that's so odd to say, I know. But they just had such a long road to hoe and they made it through a stronger couple. I think they're probably one of the strongest couples because of how much they struggled in the beginning. Their wedding was so unique and I like all the little glimpses we get 
of kind of the wedding and the ceremony and stuff without actually having the wedding because, you know, you can only read so many weddings before you're like, okay, been there, done that. But I like all the little elements that we get, particularly whenever they're talking about how the McLennan men are standing on Kevin's side and then the O'Grady men plus Amy are standing on JL's side. And it's really like the merging of the families. It's a very symbolic gesture of all of these new people that have come into the family, the O'Grady's and Amy, with JL. And in this marriage, they're all becoming part of the McClinic clan. And I really did like that visualization. That's two down. We've got Kevin and JL's search for enlightenment. And now we're going to talk a little bit about Amy's. The major thread for Amy on her search for enlightenment is Amy's buried trauma that she's kind of suppressed from her childhood and how all of that is affecting her personally and what the unearthing of that trauma gives her as far as a sense of peace. It's very subtle at first that there's something under the surface for Amy as far as uncertainty. And she says, bad things happen to good people. She knew that. It was part of life. But being launched into an alternate universe wasn't just a bad thing. It was a vast and incomprehensible mistake, and it had to be rectified. So this was when she first went back to 1909. Like, she's got that realist sense that, yes, bad things happen to good people. It's just the way it is. But you can tell that that's a belief that was ingrained in her from a very young age. By the time we get through a lot of the 1909 story and we get onto the ship and we find out she's like deathly afraid of the ocean and nobody knows why. <laughs> it's not like it's something that nobody tried to figure out. She went to therapy over the years and her therapist couldn't even figure it out. And they know that it's like directly connected to the ocean somehow. Like she's not afraid of pools. She's not afraid of bathtubs. And it's caused her nightmares, severe anxiety, like she just wants to lock herself in a room. She can't sleep, but nobody knows why. Jack, being the meditative expert that he is, has offered to help Amy figure that out. It's not quite a trance because it's a super relaxed state. It's not hypnosis. It's basically just giving her a safe space to discuss her deepest, most inner thoughts and try to figure out what's bothering her. Because Jack knows from experience that if they don't get this out, it's just going to fester and lead to more and more issues for her. And that she's not ever going to be able to heal unless she recognizes what memory has been suppressed. Amy agrees to go into this state, which is really saying something about how much she trusts Jack. Going into such a vulnerable place and digging through those memories really does take a certain level of intimacy. And and JL comments like, are you sure you two didn't have sex after this whole event? They didn't, but they experienced something almost as intimate because they basically took a walk through Amy's subconscious together and unlocked all of these deep hidden emotions and, and memories. You're showing your partner your vulnerabilities in that way. And I think that that really built on Jack and Amy's already existing bond. What we find out through this walk through Amy's subconscious is we learn a little bit more about her father, her mother, her childhood, and kind of who she 
is the things that factored into the person she became. Amy's father was a alcoholic. He actually died of um, alcohol-related liver disease. He wasn't physically abusive, but he was verbally abusive. And part of that was his grief over the loss of Amy's mother. She says she always kind of felt like he blamed her for her mother's death in some way, even though her mom died of cancer and it was in no way Amy's fault, but somehow she ended up being his verbal punching bag in a way. And that she kind of always resented her father's players because they got the best part of him. Like he never drank around his players. And she says, down deep where resentment and denial grew like weeds in a garden sat a boatload of bad memories. She resented all the players her dad had coached when he could have been helping her more. If she ever had kids, they would come first. Always. She felt like his players were his priority and that he just came home to Amy and it was what it was. Um, and she always got the raw end of the stick. That especially was the case with his drinking. She was with her father and they went to the beach where he proceeded to get drunk to the point where he passed out. And Amy was so pissed off with him because she didn't want to go to the beach. All her friends were gone. She wouldn't have had anybody to play with. And he didn't want to listen to her because it was his favorite spot and he just needed to go place to be alone with his gin. She's too young to leave at this point, but she was mad. So she just started walking and she went down the beach until she saw something floating in the water. And that thing ended up being a woman's body with a bullet hole between her eyes. Whenever she waded out into the water to like see the woman, the current kept shoving the woman's body into her. And it was, it was a very horrible sight. Her body was being eaten by all of these sea creatures. And the body was in such a state of decomposition that the woman's facial features were all weird and fat and funny. And it was just a horrible situation for a small child. Horrible to the point that her brain literally locked it in a box somewhere in her head and her conscious mind didn't remember ever experiencing that. Whenever she was finally able to get out of the water, she ran back to her dad, but her dad was passed out and couldn't help. And she was too little to help. And she really just felt this sense of forlorn hopelessness. There was nothing that she could do. Jack asked her a question. He says, what does the adult Amy believe? And she says that there's nothing that I could have done to help her. Like she was dead. So he helps her to kind of work through that sense of fear, regret, helplessness, and help her to process those emotions. Because in this state that Jack has her, it's not hypnosis or anything. Like she's very conscious of what she's reliving, but she has this memory that she's seeing now through the lens of her adult experience. And she knows that there's nothing that she could have done to help this woman. A lot of the trauma of that experience was Amy's helplessness. By the time she got back after she went for help, like the woman's body had floated away. We really see how that arc for Amy came full circle. Amy had channeled all of that fear and anger over that event into two things. Her anger towards her father that she's felt for so long for his alcoholism and like his lack of responsibility when it came to raising her. But she also channeled it into her phobia. 
And so now that this memory is out there and she's able to kind of process it and deal with it, those two things are reduced, like they're simmering a little bit. They're not on the boil. When we're talking about how this comes full circle as like a search for enlightenment for Amy, we see that in JL's rescue. When Amy's down in the hold with Stephen Thompson, after she kills him, she finds the bodies of the woman and her two children. There's part of her that feels really terrible that she's not able to save them to help them, just like she felt with the woman in the water. But she knows they're dead and there's nothing that she can do. That's adult Amy realizing that in this decision. Who she can help is JL. One of her big things on why she couldn't help the woman as a child was that she was too little. And now she's not too little to help JL. She might not have the strength that a man would have, but she's going to give everything she has into getting JL out of that cargo hold. And she does. Like, she puts it all on the line. And all the men are extremely impressed that Amy was able to get JL out of the hold. That's a really full circle moment. Not only that she was able to let go of her guilt and realize that there was nothing she could do to help the woman and the two children, but that she was able to help JL and conquer that sense of helplessness in a way. In the end, I think that Jack really gave her back control of her life, control of her emotions, and helped her to be a better version of herself. And I think that's one of the best gifts that you can give someone. So 100% that helps strengthen their relationship. So that leaves us with Jack left. And I think his journey for enlightenment has taken place, obviously, over the course of several books, but we start to really see it here in The Diamond. Learning to love again is his journey in this book. I think the scene where Amy and Jack are talking about Christy Mathewson and how he ends up dying was really the first clue that this was going to be Jack's journey. This is the first time that Amy really starts to understand Jack's grief. Amy is saying, well, I think I might have really made a difference and I might have saved Christy Mathewson's life. And Jack looks at her and says, he'll probably die anyway. And all you've done is changed the timing and given her false hope, which obviously is him projecting his own beliefs about him changing Carolina Rose's fate. He's just a damaged realist at this point. He finds it hard to sugarcoat things because he's in such a, a rough spot himself personally. He finds it easier to process things that way, I think, to just take it for what it is and not try to put an optimistic spin on it. But he also feels kind of guilty because he knows that he just really made Amy feel absolutely terrible in that moment. After he apologizes and stuff, Amy begins to realize that, like, you know, she knows the amount of anger she felt towards a disease that killed her dad, that killed her mother. But... She can't begin to imagine what it would feel like that sharp-edged and raw guilt, as she puts it, that Jack must feel. He's basically blaming himself for being the cause of Carolina Rose's death versus just a disease. I feel like that gives her a lot of empathy towards him and his actions and the things that he says. But you also have to look at the fact that after having lost someone that Jack loved so dearly, He's deathly afraid to love anybody again. I mean, he has a really good idea that Amy's his soulmate, 
there's a really cool moment where he has this vision of Amy disappearing into a cloud. For me, that spoke volumes about where he's at. He's so afraid that if he lets himself fall for Amy, she's going to disappear and he's going to be left heartbroken again. He's not willing to take the next step. He knows that he's fragile, so he's not going to make the first move. Amy's going to have to make the first move. As he puts it, he's too fragile to love again unless he knew it would last forever. Much like Kevin in jail, I was so happy when Jack got his happy ending. I think that's part of the reason this is one of my favorite books, because it was just two love stories that were absolutely just so called for from these characters that we love and have loved for several books. So a huge part of Jack's journey is getting closure with Catherine Lilly. The whole thing that like spurred him into the past was Carolina Rose and the whole mystery surrounding Carolina Rose and Catherine Lilly. And seeing Catherine Lilly in person and her resemblance to Carolina Rose knocked him for a loop. He wasn't fully prepared for what that was going to do to him. It's basically like seeing an older version of the woman that he loved so much. A lot of it was him processing that this wasn't Carolina Rose. This was a very different person that was not as compassionate, not as loving. He's constantly like, yes, this hurts, but I also have Amy here to hold on to. He's kind of using her as a life raft through his pain the fact that she, at this point in their relationship, probably like halfway through the book, can even put a Band-Aid on his pain really shows how much of a connection they already have and the potential for what they could have. By the end of the story, we really start to see why Catherine Lilly was such an integral part of this story. It was a big question for me. Okay, what's the connection here? How is this going to help resolve the problem? Like Carolina Rose is still dead, whether Catherine Lilly knew about her existence or not. There had to be an end game here. And ultimately what it made Jack realize is that love is really the end all be all. And if you don't have love in your life, whether that is a romantic love or a familial love, there's really no point to living. He tells Elliot, he says, Life lived with love encounters thorns and heartaches, but a life without love has no sweet fragrance and indelible friendships. So yes, there's a chance that you can get hurt when you love somebody deeply. But if you don't take the chance, there's also no opportunity for enriching experiences. Meeting Catherine Lilly made him realize the value of the wonderful relationships he does have in his life. It's not necessarily that it's a constant reminder of what he lost with Carolina Rose, but more so the fact that Carolina Rose had all these people in her life that were not invested in her happiness or having a relationship with her at all. Like they really viewed her as a burden. And Jack is blessed enough to have people in his life that value his friendship, having him as a member of the family, and he wants to cherish those now. And he recognizes what he has in that, whereas he didn't before. It was a really nice, swift kick in the shin for him. Like, wake up, bro, because you have a really good life and you just need to accept that and enjoy it. Jack really, I feel like, came to the fullest version of himself in this book. 
Um, And he continues to grow over the series, but he says, call it wisdom, call it personal growth, call it moving on. He was no longer Jack Mallory with the book jacket smile. He was just plain Jack and he was ready to go home. And I'm so happy. Like he was ready to be a father and be a brother and an uncle and just ready to embrace life again. What more could you want for a character who struggled for so long? He's really in a good place when he gets back, but he's still missing Amy, right? And until he has Amy in his life, he's not going to be 100% complete in himself. He makes a comment that he's sad that Bram would never get to meet Amy. He says he would never get to watch them walk hand in hand along the promenade deck, share a glass of wine or laugh at a hat blown overboard. Bram would never see Jack and Amy gazing into each other's eyes or sharing a touch or a kiss. And these are two guys that really forged a bond in Sapphire and running through the streets of burning Richmond and all the things that they went through with the assassination and whatnot. So what Bram thinks matters to him. We saw that a little bit in the three brooches when he was asking, you know, what do you think about Carolina Rose? And I think I might want to take her home with us. So hearing Jack's most inner thoughts about how he was sad that Bram would never get to meet the woman that was really the love of Jack's life really just made him sad in such a way. I almost wish that we had gotten that payoff of Bram meeting Amy because we heard Bram talking to Charlotte about her thoughts on Amy and we heard Jack being sad that Bram was never going to meet Amy So I really do kind of wish that we had gotten a scene of Bram talking to Amy and getting to know her a little bit. But alas, we probably didn't have time for it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, Amy was back for a whole year waiting for Jack to make a move. And we talked about it a little bit last week. She just sinks like a little bit lower every day that she doesn't hear from Jack until she gets the call from JL. And that's the beginning of this fabulous reunion that they have where they can finally admit that they love each other after a long time coming. Not so long for Jack, but a long time for Amy. It's so good to hear Jack say, like, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. Or if I did, I would have to pretend I don't love you. And now I want the whole world to know how I feel. And Amy says, I love you too. I just wanted to do a little happy dance when that happened. I just was so freaking excited that Jack finally got his woman and finally got his happily ever after. So there's one really cool connection that Jack and Amy have. And that's the fact that they have the same tattoo. I just am obsessed with this. That it's not like one of those couples tattoos where you went and got them together because you're just so in love. Like, no, these are tattoos that they got individually after certain important events in their lives that they both really loved the symbolism behind. And somehow they ended up being the exact same tattoo, the unalome that we discussed in the Three Brooches book club, which is a Buddhist symbol for the journey to enlightenment. It starts with a line that symbolizes birth. And then it goes back and forth into these sideways figure eights all the way up. And the figure eights resemble all the important events in your life that help build you into the person that you become on your journey. And then it ends in a straight line with three dots at the top. 
that symbolize achieving nirvana is what it's called and like moving on to the next experience after death. The fact that Amy and Jack both have these symbols tattooed on their back really is just so cool in my opinion. It really shows like their core beliefs and how similar they are. I loved the scene after they get back to Amy's cabin and she's taking a bath after they rescue JL. She's sitting in the bathtub really lost. The guilt is starting to sink in. The shock is starting to wear off on what just happened. And she she realizes, like, I just killed a man. And Jack comes in and gives her somebody to talk to while he washes her back. It's a very intimate scene. And it was very reminiscent of the scene earlier in the book, right after they initially met, when he was lacing up her corset and brushing her hair. So sexually charged. But I liked this connection that Catherine made to the three brooches. When Jack's sitting on the edge of the tub giving Amy a bath, when he sees her tattoo, he lightly traces it on her back, which is something that Carolina Rose did to him when she first saw his tattoo. It's very interesting how this one woman that Jack met has so many different connections to his happily ever after. Jack actually mentions the structure of this tattoo so covertly. He doesn't flat out say me and Amy have the same tattoo, but when he's talking about his journey with Amy and everything, when he's giving Elliot his debrief, he says, well, life's given me more figure eights than straight lines (laughs) because each of the figure eights is a life-changing experience that heightens your understanding of the world on your journey to enlightenment. And the straight lines are like downhill slopes, like where nothing's happening. You're just kind of coasting. But he realizes that he's on a straight line now and and he's good. More than anything, like when Jack saw Amy's tattoo and realized that it was the same as his, that really spoke to him, like basically solidified any lingering doubt he had that Amy was his soulmate. Fast forward to their reunion and he told her, he said, it was hard enough knowing we were destined to be together. I didn't want to burden you with the additional knowledge too. If we were going to have a future, you had to come to that realization independent of me. And that's so selfless. Considering this is a character that a lot of people consider to be the most selfish one in the clan, he realizes, and he says this to Elliot, that prior to this trip and prior to meeting Amy, Jack kind of felt that he had a right to put himself first. Going to 1909, meeting Amy, learning to love her, that all made him realize that he didn't have a right to put himself first. He always had to put other people first, particularly his family. That was the defining experience, I think, for him. And we saw that highlighted in what he told Amy. He said, you had to come to the realization independent of me. Like I wasn't going to burden you with the fact that some mystical brooch said we're meant to be together. Like you had to know that for yourself. We're coming down the road. We're almost finished for the day. But you know, there's a comment that's made by Amy and I just couldn't get this out of my head. She says, since meeting Connor and Jack, Amy felt like she'd been dropped in the middle of the third season of the McLenna family TV series with wonderfully nuanced plot and a massive, quirky cast of characters, and she'd never catch up with the rest of the fans. All these little relationships and the family is constantly growing and evolving. With each new person that's added in, it 
just slightly changes the dynamic of what's going on. So I wanted to take a moment to talk about a couple of the newer relationships that we got in this book. Not necessarily new characters, but new relationships. And one that really stuck out to me was Connor and Jack. Jack has mentioned how he really wants to be part of the O'Grady circle. Like there's just something about the way they are with each other. I talked about it a little bit whenever I was talking about Connor and Pete and JL and like how they fit so seamlessly as this little trio. And Jack sees that too. He sees this tight knit, really wonderful family having been raised in a family that was basically non-existent because his parents were both United States senators and weren't really around much. He has Charlotte, but he just, he wants to be part of that big, close family unit. Whenever Connor goes on this trip with Jack, Elliot made Connor promise that he would look out for Jack because Elliot knew that Jack was really struggling. Jack kind of takes offense to that at first, but then Connor opens up to him and says, The thing about grief, which I discovered when mom died, is you can't predict how long it will last or when it will show up again and smack you in the face. You know, like it's mad because you forgot about it for an hour or a week. That spoke to me on such a level because Connor's not looking out for Jack because Elliot asked him to. Connor knows what Jack is going through and he's doing it because he's a good person. Jack is slowly starting to feel like he's making his way into the O'Grady circle. And I think that he feels even more so after he befriends JL. The other relationship I really wanted to chat about, and it's not really one that is overly put in your face, but I just find it interesting because it's referred to a couple of times that David and JL have this really good friendship that has developed as well. And I remembered in The Broken Brooch, Meredith and Elliot had talked about how it would be interesting to see how David and JL would get along because JL was very black and white and by the book and David was very shades of gray, anything you had to do to get it done type guy. Curiously enough, they end up being very good friends that work very well together. When the book starts, he's the president of MacCorp and JL is VP of Global Security And they kind of bounce off of each other. They make mutual decisions a lot on the safety and security of the clan. I love how Kevin tells Jack she would never admit it to anyone, but she kneels at the altar of David McBain. (laughs) And we get little allusions to, you know, this handcuff escape contest that they have. And she mentions how she's really relieved to hear how steady David's voice is whenever they get back and she makes the phone call to let everybody know they're back. It's a really cool relationship that David and JL have, and again, an unlikely one that you never would have expected. That just leaves us with what's next. There was a line that Jack says. He says, Connor's a good man, dependable and fiercely loyal. If you've got him on your side, you've got a friend for life. And that was the moment that I knew that Connor was going to be the protagonist of the next book. Of course, I just love him. I love his older brother persona and all of that, but we don't really know much about Connor. So he was a bit of a mystery and one that I was very happy to dig into a little bit. So really all we know is that like Connor has this thing for a real estate agent named Olivia Kelly that lives in Colorado, dot, dot, dot. So um, stay tuned for the Amber Brooch Book Club to get deets on that. You know, a couple other things that happened that are kind of like moving us into the future of this series. Elliot ended up buying the Riverside Drive mansion off of Amy. 
Kevin and JL are moving back to the United States to be near Austin while he plays ball. And um, Kevin's going to come back as VP of finance for Matt Corp. Isabella and Maria are living with JL and Maria and Pop's got a little thingy thing going on. Isabella is enrolled as a freshman at UK with Austin. And you know, for a while, I thought they might have a thing, but alas, no dice. Patrick's living with Jack and is spending a lot of time with his new friends, JC, Emily, and Lincoln. Again, something I'm very excited to explore on where we are now in the series, book 13. They're all adults and stuff. So I'm very interested to see the dynamic there. And then the big one that just freaking shreds my heart is that Elliot's cancer is progressing. His PSA is more elevated than it has been, but he doesn't really want to talk about it, even though Meredith is not okay with not talking about it. But it just leaves this really sad scene. He says this quote, and I'm like, bro, you got to (laughs) stop. He says, I pray every day that I go before you because I'd be useless without you. You're stronger than I am, Mare. You'd hurt for a while, but you'd go on because you would have to. Too many people depend on you. They think it's me, but it's all smoke and mirrors. You're the source of the advice I give, the wisdom I convey, and the love I share. Without you, I'm nothing. And I'm like, oh my God, stop it. Yeah, I was like not feeling so good about this. And I was very irritated that this is basically how the book ended. (laughs) Like one more scene after this. Elliot's cancer just like stresses me out on a big level. (laughs) I don't like it. And I mean, it does like make me sort of secure because, you know, Catherine said that Elliot and Meredith are just never going to die. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I feel a little bit safer about it, but it still stresses me out. And the emotional torment of this whole situation is just not okay. But anyway, So that's where we're at in a nutshell for all of our clan members moving into the next book. But that's all I've got for today. I guess we'll chat probably, I'm not sure when the next book club is going to be, honestly. I'm taking a break for the holidays and then after the holidays I'm going on vacation. So it'll be like mid-January before I'm doing podcasts again at all. And that is if we still don't have news on Outlander 7B. So if we do have news on Outlander 7B, and my thoughts on it are that probably around Valentine's Day is when we will get 7B airing. And if that's the case, then I will not be doing book clubs or new podcasts really other than 7B promotional stuff until after 7B airs. But if we get through vacation and stuff and we still don't have any news, then I'll pick back up podcasting then. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, and I'll chat at you in 2024. Have a good one, guys. Bye.